Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. It is my pleasure you, to welcome you to today's conversation, California's Plans for the Future of Work, Workers, and a Renewed Social Compact. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of economic opportunity in the United States, the implications for individuals, families, and communities across the country, and ideas for change. I want to thank Prudential Financial, the Walmart Foundation, the Cerdna Foundation, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of our Opportunity in America discussion series. We are honored today to host a terrific set of speakers discussing the California Future of Work Commission's recently released report, Future of Work in California, a new social compact for work and workers. We're particularly excited to be hosting this event at this time. The report considers key issues we have long attended to at the Economic Opportunities Program, particularly the challenges of inequity, economic mobility, and low quality work. And it focuses on and on new opportunities and challenges in the future of work, a key concern of the Aspen Institute's Future of Work Initiative, which is now part of the Economic Opportunities Program. Importantly, the report frames the conversation about the future of work around the idea of a new social compact and how the institution of work can contribute to building the society of our aspirations, a question that is not just important to the Economic Opportunities Program, but to the entire Aspen Institute. In these divided and, and difficult times, we're renewing our commitment and redoubling our efforts towards the Aspen Institute's mission of advancing a more free, more just, and more equitable society. We've shared a link to the Commission's report in our email reminder for this event on the event webpage, and we'll share it again in the chat here so you have it. It's a terrific report outlining the present and likely future challenges for work and workers in California and laying out some bold ideas for addressing those challenges. And while, as the saying goes, California may be where the future happens first, the challenges the Commission grappled with echo all across the United States and communities all across the country. So we're thrilled today to discuss how the Commission arrived at these ideas for building a world of work in which workers, businesses, families, and communities can all thrive and what they think it will take to turn these recommendations into action. Before we get started, I'm gonna give a quick review of our technology. So all the attendees are muted. Also, please note that this webinar includes closed captions if that feature is helpful to you. We welcome your questions. Please do put your questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Um, and we'll try to get to as many questions as we can. We have uh, lots of participation we're glad to see for this event. So uh, we'll, we'll do our best with everybody's questions. Um, also, we'll be sharing resources in the chat and we encourage you to share resources and comments in the chat as well. We also encourage you to tweet about this conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have any technical issues during the webinar, you can chat with the Economic Opportunities Program or email us at EOP dot program at aspeninstitute.org. This webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website. Okay, and now I get to the part where I'm going to introduce our panelists. We have great panelists, uh, mostly with us, and one of them, I hope, is, is on her way. Um, so, uh, I will do a brief uh, names to faces introductions. We have everybody's bio material on our on our website. They're really a terrific group. Um, so I'm, but uh, if I 
described all of their accomplishments, we'd be here all day and you wouldn't get to hear from them. So just, uh, so just briefly, um, we have James Manika, senior partner, McKinsey and Company, chairman and director, McKinsey Global Institute, co-chair, California of Work, Future of Work Commission, and also an Aspen Institute trustee. Welcome, James. Glad to have you with us today. Um, we have Julie Sue, Secretary, California Labor and Workforce Development Agency, and a key player in this California Future of Work Commission. Thank you for joining us today, Julie. Um, we are hoping uh, that Mary Kay Henry, International President, Service Employees International Union, also co-chair of the California's Future of Work Commission, will be joining us before too long. Um, and we're delighted to welcome to moderate this important conversation, journalist and author who has been thinking and writing about issues of work and workers for quite some time, Eduardo Porter, economics reporter for the New York Times. So thank you, Eduardo, and I will turn it over to you. Um, thanks a lot, Maureen. Um, hi, everybody. Um, it's really great to be here uh, to hear uh, you guys talk about the, the, the future of work. Um, I've been thinking about the future of work for a long time. Um, I've written about workers in retail, which is still the largest occupation in the economy, you know, pondering what kind of institutional changes, tougher government regulations, heavier union representation or something, could turn them into something more than a dead-end job. Um, I've written about home health aides and personal care aides, the fastest growing occupation in the country. Uh, these workers are pivotal to our future. As we age, many of us are gonna come to depend on that kind of worker. And yet they make, make $26,000 a year. And their story, by the way, doesn't really quite fit into this frame of bid bad corporation being bad for workers because ultimately most of these jobs are paid for by the federal government through the Medicaid program. I've written about automation, assessing whether it truly enhances business productivity or not. I pondered, like I'm sure you have, what automation means to the future of the labor market. Um, a couple of years ago, I went on uh, a reporting uh, trip to Phoenix. You know, Phoenix has been pretty successful in building a technology-heavy ecosystem branching from its pretty large semiconductor industry. It has attracted startups from California. Um, ASU has doubled down on tech. But you know what? Despite this success, the vast majority of jobs that are created in Phoenix are not techie jobs. They're fast food jobs and retail jobs and security guard jobs. And this presents to me one of the most important and tough questions about the new American labor market and our technological transition. Because unlike say the transition from agriculture to an industrial economy, which led to much more productive jobs, the process of de-industrialization that we've been going through over the past, what, 20, 30 years has moved large shares of the workforce into less productive jobs than their industrial formators. So I think, I mean, the question for me about the future of jobs is how can you build an equitable society on these sorts of economic trends? And I hope to hear a little bit about that from you guys today. So anyway, let's enough about me. Let's talk about you. Um, I, I find it really interesting that California is putting all this effort in understanding the challenges and suggesting prescriptions. Um, I'm eager to hear from California because you do happen to be at the cutting edge of American innovation. You know, 
you're the creators of a lot of the robots that are, you know, whacking the industrial jobs of our past <laughs> and perhaps creating the jobs of our future. But let me ask you something like really basic, take, taking something a step back. And, and it's, I've seen as in my writing, a dozen, two dozen future of work reports over the last few years. I've moderated sessions about future of work reports a couple of times before. And several of them, by the way, have been authored by McKinsey. In fact, James. So maybe a question that I think others might be, be interested in to hear about too is, well, what, what's new about this one? What new insights can you share about you know the future of work and and and, and how to address the challenges and and uh, I don't know maybe I guess I should address this first to you James although you know Julie uh, please jump in and 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 as part of that question maybe you could also help me think through help us think through what's different about California I mean does Cal does a California setting uh, provide any particular useful insight or angle into this question? Well, well, thank you. Thank you, Eduardo. Glad to be here with you and Secretary Sue. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity. But I think you're asking a very important question. You're right. I've probably been involved in many of these future work uh, research efforts, both uh, at McKinsey Global Institute, but also even at Aspen and a few other places, including you know, a few universities. I think what's different about this is the following. Uh, we started in a very different place in California. Our question was not what's technology going to do to jobs. What we didn't, that, that was not the starting point. We started the question of what is happening to work and workers in California. That was our starting position. So because of that, it allowed us to explore a whole range of issues of which, yes, technology is one of those, but there's so many others too. There's issues of work in poverty. There's issues to do with uh, unequal access to jobs. The issues to do with the fact that different parts of our state are experiencing work uh, very differently. So one big difference was just our starting point and the questions we were grappling with. We didn't ignore technology, but it wasn't the starting point. It was part of it. The second key difference was, uh, and this is the thing that's been quite unique, I think, Eduardo, about this commission compared to many other things that I've been involved in, which is uh, the composition of the commissioners was fascinating. Uh, the governor put together a group of people who, who wouldn't otherwise work together on these issues. We had labor union leaders, we had, we had academics, we had business people. It was an incredibly diverse uh, group of people. And I have to tell you at the beginning, I thought, oh my goodness, this is not gonna work. Uh, these people have never been around the table together to figure out these questions. Are we even gonna even have a conversation about any of this? So that was unusual. That was highly unusual. And I think that I haven't seen that anywhere in some of the other commissions or efforts of this kind. The other thing that was, and the last thing I'll comment about what was unusual was how we actually worked. We literally spent most of our time listening to workers, uh, listening to business leaders, listening to people who've been researching these things. And we met in different parts of the state. We literally had our meeting, you know, so you could, you could, you might've thought that we were all in Sacramento hanging out with the governor. We were not doing that. In fact, we were going around the state uh, meeting with work and workers. So all of that, the construct was very, very different. And I think as we'll get into in, our, uh, in a second here, it allowed us to be able to really deeply understand what are the issues today, as well as going forward, 
you know, to do with working workers. And it's one of the things that actually allowed us to realize that we're going to have to come up with something that feels like a social compact here because these issues are so encompassing and so interrelated. And I'm sure we'll get into in a second uh, what some of those aspects of the recommendations were. But I think the setup was very, very different and highly unusual. Cool. Cool. Uh, uh, Julie, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts kind of on this. And what was the motivation for the government now to, you know, to ask this question and to get involved in this kind of like broad national conversation. So could you, could you tell us a little bit more about the thinking inside inside government and, and how also how you chose to set it up in this way that as James points out is a little unusual. I mean, you've got business, you've got labor, you've got government. I mean, the three of you kind of like <laughs> encompass this, this these universes. Um, what did, did, did do you think any you know unique insights arose from the kind of like the tensions or the the synchronicities between these different these different actors? Thank you so much, Eduardo. And the short answer to your last question is absolutely yes. Um, that the it also kind of goes to your question about you know what makes California so special. Um, I think the makeup and the composition of the commission really drives home the point that you know our diversity is our excellence and we really were very deliberate in putting together the members of the commission uh, before the governor announced uh, announced them to, to make sure that they represented um, various sectors of California's leadership, California's economy, um, California's communities. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, right, our co-chairs uh, represent, um, you know, they're, they're James and Mary Kay, uh, who were phenomenal. Um, the rest of the commission represents everything from, you know, business and, uh, and management to labor and those who represent advocate for low wage workers, uh, um, tech companies and venture capital, uh, academia uh, and government. And what we were looking for was not just people who had been, you know, really uh, creative and smart in their own fields, but who could be champions and come to the table and really think about um, uh, creatively about what we wanted to build and, uh, you know, what not just sort of, you know, what the future of work um, was likely to be, but what it could be, right? The executive order was really about what work could be in the years to come. And we took that both as a analytical starting point, like what, 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 what's, what's probably gonna happen, but also a, um, a, a, a jumping off point for really using our imaginations, right? Like what, what could it be? Because what it is is not gonna be inevitable. And so I think that that was uh, very exciting. Um, you know, the other thing that I, you know, we started out very early learning that one third of California workers make less than $15 an hour. And um, the, the workers of color, uh, African-American, Latinos and um, Pacific Islanders are disproportionately represented in that low wage work population. Uh, we also um, talked about how 20% of those workers actually have a college degree. And so it really started to explode this notion that the problem is, is skills, right, or education. Um, and of course, you know, Dr. Soraya Coley was on the commission too and, and was incredibly powerful and insightful talking about the role of education in the 
the future of work. Um, so we really uh, approached the problem from both a standpoint of it's not inevitable and of, um, you know, if we are going to shape the future of work, we really need to be moving beyond talks about robot apocalypse and, and, and skills gaps. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and the other thing that made the work different besides the composition was that it was a public body that held every meeting um, in a public setting where the public was invited uh, to come. And as James already said, we're really proud that we went across the state to do that, both to encourage participation, but also to acknowledge that California is a big state with many different economies and with different communities that are affected differently. And we wanted to make sure that we, we, we heard uh, and represented all of that. And so members of the public um, came to meetings and, and gave testimony and we really valued that input too. Cool, cool. Uh, thank you. So, so I don't want to belabor too much this the, the, the part about process, but I would really like to hear from, from Mary Kay now that you're on. Hi. Hello. Um, um, I, I, I really want to hear your perspective on this because I'm thinking, well, specifically in the California context, labor and business have been just recently engaged in some pretty tense grappling over, you know, how to qualify, how you define an employee um, in the context of give work. And so, I mean, just I'm just having that in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, okay, well, how do you guys sit down to the table and try to find common space for a common solution space where obviously you're gonna have the, the, uh, the, the businesses that are at the, at, the, at the cutting edge of this new gig economy that are have some pretty radically different ideas from folks like you. Um, thanks, Eduardo. One of the key things that we did as a commission is started every meeting with a question that each commissioner had to ask that gave us insight into one another's life experience. And this was a, a brilliant idea of our Secretary of Labor, Julie Sue. And I don't know, Julie, what the first question was, but I think it was, uh, what work experience as a young person did you have that informed um, how you think about things today? I, it's something. And what we learned about each other is that many of the commissioners did either unpaid care work or were children working in their parents' small business or were um, minimum wage workers who had experienced wage theft or uh, some other uh, live experience of workers that created a way for us to think together, um, not from our boxes, but as a group of leaders in California that were willing to stare in the face, um, the racial and economic and gender inequality that is pernicious uh, that we all understood has existed for decades. And that if we were to think about the future of work and had the privilege of thinking over the long haul, maybe we could figure out the things that could intervene and end that inequality and close the gap um, once and for all. So I think it was uh, building a relationship with each other, looking at the scope and scale of the problem uh, together and getting a shared analysis of the part problem that James um, work from McKenzie really helped inform together with the Institute of the Future and uh, together with the state of California. Um, and then our willingness to listen to the life experience of underpaid workers who were welcomed on a panel in the very first uh, convening that uh, Julie organized where the commissioners listened across 
I think there was a warehouse worker. We had a janitor member from SEIU. There, um, and there were two other, one was a worker that was in a sort of innovative startup and felt like they had shared ownership of the company based on the policies. And it just gave you this range of worker experience that we tried to weave in through every commission meeting. So I think that kind of busted us out of our um, corners is the way I would describe it. Yeah, I, I would just, just to add one other quick thought what Mary Kay just described, Eduardo. I think one of the things that often happens in these future work conversations, it's, it's workers and big business, but we also, for example, spend some time listening to small and medium-sized businesses where the challenges are a little bit different. Uh, which was also just a fascinating other uh, kinds, kind, kind, of, uh, kind of question to, 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 to grapple with. But I think many of the things you described at the beginning became very evident to us, which is even though there is work, uh, you know, a lot of it is low wage work. I mean, I was stunned to know that there's something close to 7 million California workers who are in work, you know, who live in working poverty, for example. They're working but they just don't earn enough because of the nature of the jobs and the structure of those jobs, uh, which is quite, uh, quite, quite, quite stunning to me. Uh, you know, so, so a lot of those things were very kind of very illuminating and insightful just to hear, not only hear, but see the data. So it was a combination of hearing from workers, seeing the actual data across the state and how different that was. That was just very, very informative. Yeah. And the other thing, Eduardo, just to build on that is we were very aware that our work was not occurring in a vacuum, right? There were other things going on um, parallel to in conjunction with our work. At the very first meeting, James brought up that the business roundtable had already been having conversations about how shareholder uh, capitalism uh, ought to be um, sort of questioned in favor of a stakeholder capitalism. So how do we look at the role of business and really stepping up to help create a future of work that is um, good for workers and good for the economy, frankly, and good for business too. Um, we also, of course, had the pandemic hit, right? Bef while we were, uh, you know, uh, in really getting close to the end of the work. Uh, and so that was something that, of course, um, you know, was not just unexpected, but really magnified the importance of what we're doing and forced us to think about, have we addressed what the future of work and workers looks like in light of the fact that we are now in a position to, in many ways, rebuild the economy and, and, and how, what does that mean for us? How do we do that in a way that's worthy of the work that we've done and, and, and of, of the, of the um, you know, workers and the people in our society? Um, and then I think the other piece of this, th th this context is really you know, recognizing the opportunities that have come up, um, you know, the challenges that come up due to the pandemic. So we've seen, as Mary Carrie mentioned, care work, you know, we, it was no accident that such a high number of care workers uh, got sick in the pandemic, died in the pandemic. Um, and the fact that they were working, but having to work multiple jobs to piece together life, having to go to work, even when, you know, um, you know, all science was saying that people need to stay home, but because there were untenable choices they had to make, it really um, helped to accelerate the, the sense that we needed to be bold and big and also concrete in what the commission did. Yeah, thanks. It, look, it's interesting uh, from hearing what you've just, you've all been just talking about. Um, you know, I, I, I often, these, this, this, these discussions about, you know, what to do to fix what ails American society, you have the people that talk about 
what they broadly name pre-distribution. So how do we affect the labor market? How do we affect the market distribution of incomes? Uh, and that's mostly a question about how do we, you know, intervene in work uh, through regulations, minimum wage things, and, and, and so forth. And then there's the issue of redistribution, which is considered kind of like after the work part. Okay, then how do we do through taxes and transfers to kind of mitigate the inequities and, and lift people from the bottom? And those two, these two things are normally considered kind of separate. They are in separate conversations. But what, what, what you guys seem to be saying, and I, I, I kind of like it, I got that point particularly strongly from, from a comment that James made a moment ago about, about the need for a social compact. I wonder to what extent you guys are thinking that these issues that you're that you're diagnosing, you know, low quality jobs, uh, very low wages, a lot of working poverty, to what extent are these uh, can these be ad addressed by one or the other of these components? Mm -hmm. And wh whoever wants to jump in first. Uh... I'm happy to. I think you need both. I think you need uh -huh. both. Um, you, you absolutely need both because some of the pre-distributional things typically tend to go at how do you prepare people for work? How do you give them and put them in conditions and circumstances where they can work? So of course, issues to do with access to jobs, issues to do with uh, skills and preparation, but also issues on the pre side to do with, I can't remember who, which commissioner coined the term when we we're working, but we ended up also looking at a whole bunch of things that we called work adjacent issues. These were issues to do with the fact that there's a whole bunch of other things that get in the way of people being able to have access to good jobs, either the cost of housing, cost of transportation, a whole set of things. So typically those kinds of things tend to be things you want to have set up uh, ahead of time and prepare people. So you might call those kind of pre-distributional kind of actions. But you also have to get to the post, uh, you know, the distributional questions too, because the the wage inequality, you know, which is everywhere, of course, in the whole country, but I think it's very stark in California. Uh, it's, it's hard not to see that as you go from community to community, it's very, very striking. So I think those questions are quite real. So whether you do that with raising wages or, uh, you know, some of the experiments around UBI, or, but I think you have to get it addressing the wage income question and especially given the issue we described earlier of working poverty, this is when you have people who are actually working, but they just don't earn enough to live. I think that's, 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 a, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, to my mind, that is the problem. I mean, there's, I don't see a problem with a lack of jobs. I think we have tools to, you know, pandemics aside, we have tools to get to full employment, but we don't, yet have tools to ensure that that full employment is good quality employment. Um, so anyway, yeah. I mean, you guys, the purpose of the effort is to come out with some actual, you know, concrete proposals about what should be done. And um, I, wanted, I wanted to get to that um, just really briefly, you, you know, you mentioned that one of the objectives should be to have that there be jobs for everybody who wants one, eliminate working poverty, uh, be a better a set of worker benefits and safety net protections uh, uh, to ensure the most vulnerable have a have a higher floor, more good quality jobs, and then one that I'd love that we go into a little bit further in, 
in a, in a few moments about future proofing the labor market, which is, I think, like a really big kind of challenge that could easily take us into the realm of sci-fi. Um, but, but, um, so Eduardo, you left out a big one, job quality. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I thought, okay, yeah, no, that's, yeah, yeah, the, to produce good quality jobs, yeah. We care about that one a lot. Uh, yeah, no, no, I think I did go through it. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. But I didn't mean to skip it over. Um, so, but I don't know, maybe, let me, let me start from the beginning, this idea of jobs for everybody who wants to, wants one. And, and let me address this first at, at you, Julie. I just wrote about this and I, I was reading about, you know, kind of like from the left of the political spectrum in the United States, an idea from the Great Depression and the New Deal is kind of like right now back in order, which is a government guaranteed job. And, uh, you know, this idea that that not, not only would ensure full employment, but it would also ensure good quality full employment because the government would presumably pay a good wage with good benefits and that would set a floor for everybody else. Are you guys going anywhere in that direction or, or what, what are the kind of like solutions? What, what kind of are the places that you can tweak the margins that you can act on to uh, achieve that? Great, so let me say there is a part of the recommendation that is uh, to call on the federal government for a jobs guarantee. But the bulk of the recommendation and it, in, in uh, you know, line with the spirit of the work of the commission is that it is going to take all actors to, uh, to, to, to get where we wanna go and, and, where, and where we believe we should go and, and you know, the commission's recommendations. Um, and so the, bulk of job creation is going to come from the private sector. It has to come from the private sector. And so part of our recommendations is, you know, this call to action, right, that, that we, that we, uh, we want to make sure that we are clear about the roles and responsibilities of various sectors of our civil society. And also that um, there are ways to uh, enact mechanisms that would help support job creation in good jobs, in jobs that help further other policy priorities that we have. So for example, one of our recommendations is um, a, a million jobs uh, in line with California's um, effort to uh, meet climate goals. And the governor here, you know, he has already signed an executive order uh, about electric vehicles. And there's many opportunities in those, in all those policy goals, like electric vehicles, like affordable housing, like good transportation, like quality care to create good jobs uh, along with them. Um, so, uh, so, 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 and then of course, what follows from the job is the workforce development and training side. But that's just a really important component of all of this, right? Which is to move away from the idea that if we just trained people more in general, that somehow we would improve their conditions and we would improve the economy. These have to be demand driven um, and they have to be driven by the, by the jobs. Um, so, and then another piece of that is just making sure that when you do create good jobs, that the people who have the greatest trouble getting good jobs are actually um, given pathways to them. So our call is really for much more than just government to, to act, um, yeah. at recognizing that in our economy, it's gonna take a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that is, uh, I think, a critical thought. And, and oh, I'm my, sorry, 
one, oh. one thing I'll say about, because it's part of that recommendation too, is uh, this relates to education and entrepreneurship, right? The point was also made by commissioners that entrepreneurs are job creators. So we need to invest in um, how we support entrepreneurs to be able to, uh, you know, start businesses that become bigger businesses that actually create jobs and recognizing that entrepreneurship is a way that also communities, especially communities of color, uh, populations that, um, that that face barriers to getting employed, uh, including the undocumented population, that they can gain a foothold in society and also build some wealth. Yeah, yeah. Just to what you're just saying, the skills argument really annoys me when it becomes the only bell that anybody hits. And, you know, just thinking back to that story I did in Phoenix, you know, you put skills in all these people and the jobs that are there are still retail jobs, 7-Eleven jobs and McDonald's jobs. I mean, you know, so there has to be something on the demand for work side <laughs> to complement any argument about skills. But just what, let me take another step because the next two, the idea of eliminating working poverty and the idea of, you know, establishing better worker benefits, a better safety net, I think that's a really great question for Mary Kay, because that sort of sounds to me like what your day job is about, you know, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it, it's ensuring that the norms around the workplace and the agreements between workers and employers eliminate working poverty, <laughs> presumably, and, and, and establish a, a good, a, benefits. And, 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 and so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about where you think I guess the more actionable, the, the, you know, the, the, the easier bits of this, of the challenge are, and then maybe what are the more complicated ones to get to. Sure. And Eduardo, I understand you spoke about home health aides in the opening and yeah. that the $26,000 a year um, is insufficient. And that as a nation and society, we have to figure out, are we going to value that care work in this century in the same way we valued manufacturing work of the last century? And that that's a future of work shift that working people are already in. The service and care sector shift is upon us. And the question is, um, how do we eliminate uh, working poverty? And I have to tell you, for me, it was absolutely chilling when this civil society table of commissioners all uniformly agreed that that should be a moonshot goal, that by 2030, California should eliminate uh, working poverty in the state. And that if you plan out that far, what would be an intervention in the first two years that would give people the confidence that we could actually make it happen across um, all sectors of work in the state. And that's why we created the care um, sector as an example of what could be actionable uh, in the next two years. Because California invests through the in-home supportive services program, a Medicaid program, and then there's Medicare, there's private dollars, and there could be a way to think about the 1.5 million women, primarily women of color and immigrant women, a lot of undocumented women doing this work and how do we do what you and James were talking about. It isn't simply this moonshot, but it's the combination of the other moonshots that would really situate this job as a job, the fastest growing job in the economy and as a job that could be the foundation of the most racially diverse middle class the nation's ever seen. By thinking about what action does government 
private employers and education take together to make this job a living wage job with secure benefits. And the good news is that the Biden administration wants to invest new dollars in it that could help catalyze. It wouldn't compete with current interests. It could introduce new jobs that could raise the standard for all that work uh, across um, the home care sector. And so that's why we thought about the role and relationship, as you said, between ending working poverty and creating stable benefits. We are, unless we have both what you and James were talking about, the work adjacent issues, but also beyond wages, secure benefits, uh, sane scheduling that people can do, raise their families and not be in just in time scheduling uh, situations, that those two have to work in harmony with each other. Yeah. 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 You know, Eduardo, the, the, the irony of this particular part of the recommendation is that on the one hand, um, many of the people who are working these low poverty jobs or these low wage jobs, specifically care workers, but also some retail and some hospitality have also ended up being the most adversely impacted during COVID uh, because that's where many of the shutdown of activities have gone. That's where they have very little in terms of safety nets and benefits. Uh, and they all earn very little. So you've got that challenge. Then the irony, of course, is that many of them are the ones we actually need for the essential work, whether it's the care work. So you, we kind of have, you know, this is a, it is a real moment in the sense that the people we're relying on a lot in the care sector to do a lot of the essential work that we need in this moment happen to be many of the ones who live in working poverty. Yeah. I think if there isn't, if there's going to be a call to action, uh, this is it right? This is it. And, you know, so, and, and, and you know, from all the studies on the future of work, we know that one category of work that's going to continue to grow is in fact this service sector, but especially the care work that's mm -hmm. going to continue to grow. So we have to grapple with this one. That's why we thought to make it a moonshot goal, because even after the pandemic hopefully is gone, this one, this issue doesn't go away. Yeah. It yeah. only gets bigger. Yeah. Yeah, there is kind of like this fundamental philosophical strain between the obvious value to society of these jobs. And I can think of other jobs, you know, teachers also come to yes. mind, and yes. you know, and childcare, uh, child, exactly. And, and yet the how our market, our labor market really does not reward them to the level that that to the, 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 to representing the value that they, that they provide to society. But so let me, I mean, Eduardo, could, I'm sorry, yeah, can I just, go, go. To, to that point, one thing that I didn't make explicit enough on this working poverty is the other kind of breakthrough agreement from my perspective that we achieved across the commission is that the mechanism of collective bargaining was a way to address the, the point you just made, which is the market isn't going to address that unless the workers doing the work have the power to have their own voice and agency in the design of the system and their work. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget being in the small group in Stockton when we were broken into groups to imagine these moonshots when uh, Roy Bahat from Bloomberg said, just looked at me and said, well, I just don't think we're gonna end working poverty unless we encourage uh, workers to be able to join unions. And it was to me a, a sort of signature moment in the commission of that we all started playing each other's parts in trying to think about how do we make proposals that are actually gonna 
what you said, be actionable on the moonshot and get us toward the goal. And um, him being aware that care workers having organization to advocate as a key lever uh, was a breakthrough in that small group. I'm going to build on that just for a second too, Mary Kay. I love the the sort of memories, right, that we could all share about um, what you asked at the beginning, Edward, whether there were points of kind of tension or or, or maybe synthesis, you said, right, um, that led us to where we were. And I think there was a misperception when we started that somehow someone had all the ideas for the commission and we were just putting together a group of people to validate them. And from the very beginning, right, we said we have, you know, uh, you know, I knew that wasn't where the governor was coming from, and we said very clearly, no, not only is that not true, but we imagine that by bringing you all together, what we ultimately come up with after this process is going to be better than any one of us could have come up with sitting here alone or even at this time. So there should be something. Um, uh, you know, that changes in terms of how we think about the problems, how we think about the solutions, and even maybe, you know, how, how, how we operate ourselves. And so it's so neat to hear Mary Kay say that. I mean, we, I think we all, ha all have stories about every single commissioner who engaged in that way, but I'll build on, um, on Roy Bahat, who was just so thoughtful and, and, and open uh, from the beginning because there was an earlier meeting, our second convening, which was held at Stanford about technology. And I remember a conversation he engaged in with a speaker where the, 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 the speaker was basically saying, um, you know, really what would help is if venture capitalists at the moment that they were making their investments really prioritized worker well-being. Like, why can't we connect worker well-being to our technological, um, uh, you know, investments? What we research, what we uh, build, what we deploy. And initially, Roy's answer was, "Well, our investments are made so early on that it's really hard for anybody to kind of put those um, put those guidelines in place at the time." By the end of that meeting, Roy basically said, "Actually, I was wrong about that." We should focus on that at the beginning because we have a role to play in ensuring that whatever is, is built, right, whatever we support actually advances worker well-being. And I just thought that combined with what Mary Kay said, right, and again, there's stories about everybody, the, the, the voices of the commissioners continue to stay with me about the, the things that they said, like all, the, all along, uh, the things that each person learned and how that resulted in, uh, in, in, the, in the ultimate recommendations. Wow. So listen, guys, what you've said has created, just created a bunch of new questions. Uh, but I wanted to, to throw this one that came in from the audience that I want to build on a little bit. It is, one is, which I think is very important, is what do you mean by a good quality job? And I want to just piggyback on that question of what a good quality job is it, is to kind of like push back against the sort of optimism that I hear from you guys. And I'm sorry, I'm a journalist and I write about economics, so I'm meant to be a pessimist. Um, but so, so for instance, uh, on, on, on healthcare workers, okay? Healthcare workers uh, are mostly paid for by Medicaid. But I think it's like 75 cents out of the, every dollar that goes into this, into this job come from Medicaid. So if we are going to uh, make this a better job, better paid job with better benefits. I mean, it seems to me that there, this is a tax and transfer problem, but it's a, obviously not an easy one because we've had, I mean, this, this, this problem has been looking, staring at us in the face for years now. 
And obviously there's agency issues between Medicaid and Medicare and whatnot that might make these things more difficult, but you know, let's raise another 5% of GDP in taxes and use that to you know, increase the budget for Medicaid and then maybe, but evidently this has not kind of happened. Then also on the way of, yeah, I, I would agree that it seems like one place to look out is unionization. But as you guys well know, unions represent what, 7% of the private sector labor force or something like that. So from there to wherever, you know, the labor can really have a big footprint on the economy and really make a big difference economy wise, seems like a big haul. I mean, seems like a moonshot uh, or a star shot. Um, and, and so I, I just wonder, I, I just would kind of like you to, to push back against my pushback here um, and tell me what are the sort of solutions that you're thinking of? And to, to, just to throw one possibility out there, for maybe specifically for Mary Kay, are you guys talking about, say, a sectoral wage bargaining where you can have like, you know, it's only 7% of workers who are represented by unions, but they can, rep they can negotiate for an entire sector across a full state or a full country, uh, as it happens in some countries in Europe. I mean, are these part of the ideas? Yes, um, for the care sector, especially the IHSS program covers 400,000 home care workers in California that currently collectively bargain. There's another million that are distributed against uh, across hundreds of small businesses. Is there a way to create a uh, multi-employer table across California that thinks about wages, benefits, education and training, the uh, better services for the elders and people with disability that we serve in the community? Is there a way for middle-class families to buy into a public program that would reduce their out-of-pocket costs? There's lots of innovations that are happening all around the world. Um, that we, I think, have the innovation and uh, commitment in California to try and make a national breakthrough on. Yeah, if, if, I, if I could jump in, Eduardo, you know, I think you're right to push on this one. This is not easy. Uh, this is not easy, uh, just to be perfectly honest, because even if you take, uh, uh, so take the side of employers and businesses, for example, one of the things that I hear a lot, uh, and uh, to be fair, this is mostly around uh, among larger companies, is that you know many of them would say they'd like to raise wages, but I don't want to do it on my own. I'd like my competitors to do the same thing because I operate in these margin in these markets that are very competitive, and the margins are so thin. If I unilaterally do it, uh, it's hard. Could we all do it together? Could we somehow either? through a compact or a set of incentives, do it together. I think that's a little bit of what you're starting to hear even from large company uh, uh, organizations like the Business Roundtable, for example. So while that might work for those very large companies, the, there's a group of employers where this becomes very difficult. These tend to be the small and medium-sized businesses because for them, it's much harder because they don't have the cushions, the scale, or even the balance sheets and right to do what, what large companies do. So the small medium-sized businesses, which by the way, employ a fair number of these low wage workers, either in hospitality or retail, uh, as well as even care work. I don't mean care workers in the hospitals necessarily, but care work, home health care and home care and other kinds of care. This becomes very difficult small medium-sized businesses. That's why I think at some level, 
there needs to be some collective action, whether it's at the state level or probably even better at the federal level to say, this is a collective problem. How do we think about the, the kind of incentives we create? One of the things that I've always felt um, is an under-leveraged uh, part of our incentive systems for companies is we've created all these incentives to encourage companies, for example, to invest in capital, to invest in, you know, we allow them to depreciate capital, to invest in R&D, which is wonderful. And we should keep doing that because it's great for the economy, great for innovation and productivity. But the scale of incentives aimed at uh, human capital doesn't pales in comparison to the kind of incentives we've put in place to encourage companies to do the right thing for, for workers. I mean, even Aspen's own future work initiatives has actually pointed this out, uh, that you know, what if we actually went at the set of incentives uh, that we put in for, for companies to encourage the right kind of behavior? So I think you're right to push on this one. This is a very complicated one, which is why in our minds, at least in the, in the commission, we wanted to put out a moonshot goal knowing that there isn't a simple silver bullet answer this year or next year, but what if we imagined what the future could look like in 10 years? And let's all work very hard to try the kinds of experiments, initiatives that Mary Kay is describing that are very targeted to see what we learn from that and what we can scale for that mm -hmm. uh, around that. At the same time, working these other levers to see if we get a very different outcome uh, within a decade. Julie, to this point, I wanted to ask you, and because you talked about, you know, the, the you took some 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 hope from from businesses realizing the importance of uh, uh, of their stakeholders, of their workers, and so on. And I and and I wanted to tie that in with what, what James just said about the role of incentives, or you could also call it, you know, uh, regulations, or you know the whole array of tools that governments can use to sway business behavior versus business goodwill or business realizing that the world that they live in is not optimal or, and I'd love to hear your thought about to what extent should we trust things like, I don't know, CSR, which I'm super skeptical of, or, and to what extent it's like, you know, yeah, change the depreciation rules so that, you know, they can't, the incentive to put in more machines isn't as great. And, you know, how do you, how do you balance those two, those two ideas? Yeah, thank you, Edward. I mean, I, I, it's a yes and, right? It mm -hmm. is a, um, it, you know, there, there are many different approaches to what is, uh, you know, probably like the, the, the biggest challenge of our time, which is how are we going to, um, you know, create a, a world, an economy in which um, everybody shares in, uh, in, in, in security um, and, and, and what's good about it. And I think that this goes back to the quality job question, right, which is um, we, we have these moonshots, like what you said is true, you know, many of these things are hard and that's why the goals, the, the recommendations are set out for 10 years. But um, I think it was Carla Javits and uh, Controller Betty who came up with the concept of if we're gonna have moonshots, we also need rockets, right? So we also need the things that are gonna carry us there. And the, and, and the commission thought long and hard about what those rockets would be. And so I think those rockets run the gamut from, um, you know, voluntary, we, you know, we want people to step up and, and do better and show how it can be done better. They also have, you know, as, as the state, right, we want, employers who do right by their workers to know that the state is on their side. So how do we help do that? 
um, how do we incentivize that more? So procurement is one obvious tool for that, right? If we, uh, to how, how we use public dollars, what we subsidize through public dollars sends a message to, and it's very important that can help to incentivize. And then we also have in there, right, that there is a need for, you know, at, at, at the other, for enforcement, right? There's, we need to make sure that the standards we do, do put in place um, are enforced. I will say that one, one thing about the job quality question is we don't know how we're doing if we don't measure it. And so mm -hmm. that's why one of the recommendations is really about rolling up our sleeves and coming up with how what is a job quality index that 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 we could um, you know, that we can measure our progress by, and at the same time, you know, can we create a California job quality incubator where we are looking at ways to move us toward uh, uh, to, to, toward better jobs? Um, and then to Mary Kay's point, I was going to say this earlier too. I think one of the um, points of consensus was that workers have to have more power in the workplace and part of that power is the ability to form a union and so um, all of these are part of of the solution and we were very clear that we didn't expect the report to cover everything either so the next step is really to go out engage with Californians about what does this mean to you what role will you play and that runs everything from our you know fantastic philanthropic community which was so key to funding the institute for the future in 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 the in you know going on this journey with the commission um, to um, unions and worker centers, um, to educational institutions, right? To workforce boards, to, um, to, to, to businesses of all sizes. So it, it really is a call to action in that way. Cool. So I think this is the, the moment where we, oh, I open it up to, to some questions from the audience or some really interesting ones. Um, um, and so, so the first one, which has been, is very popular is, could you talk a little bit more, I don't know who wants to take this one up, but about the regional differences that you guys uh, uncovered ac across the state when you were looking at uh, conditions across the state? Um, sure, I don't know if you want to take that, Julie, I'm happy to. Um, Go ahead, James, I'll build on you. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the things that we, we did look at in California, right, if you look across California's counties, uh, whether it's you look at job growth, uh, wage patterns in each county, uh, access to jobs, there's enormous uh, variation, quite frankly, right? Because if you're, you know, if you're in, you know, if, if you're in the Inland Empire, for example, the questions of access to jobs are very, very different. So one of the things we, we found ourselves grappling with is that this issue of kind of, we called it inequality of people and place. I mean, there's clearly inequality of people, whether it's social income groups, uh, race, gender, and, and so forth. But this difference of inequality of place was very, very striking. And some of these places are not very far from each other. I remember one of our meetings that we had in Stockton, uh, which you know, arguably is, is not too far from San Francisco, but boy, how was it different? Yeah. And boy, were the issues very different. Yeah. Uh, and that's not even that far away. So I think this question, then this gets you at question. So what do you do in, with these regional local differences? Is it about creating incentives or encouraging companies to open offices there? We actually think, by the way, COVID might have expanded our uh, solution space here a little bit in some ways, just given some of the in-state movement that we're starting to see and people working in very different configurations. But I think this question of these differences 
uh, was very, very striking. By the way, this is endemic. Uh, this is not that different from what we see across the country, by the way. I think I might have mentioned in an earlier conversation in Water, we, we've done some work. We literally looked at every one of the 3,149 counties uh, in the United States. And you see, again, these micro differences, even in the same state. So in that mm -hmm. sense, California is not different from the rest of the country. But boy, is it quite striking. I think this also then calls for very different sets of solutions, if you like, uh, or toolkit to use, or rockets to use Julie's uh, language uh, to address some of these regional differences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Julie, do you want to take it on or should I move, move to the next question? Here's another really good one. Okay, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I can. Okay, so, so um, uh, here, uh, this question is whether you guys considered uh, employee ownership models, are they part of the solution to what extent like, you know, cooperatives uh, and so on could be considered as, as, as part of a strategy to, to improve the quality of work and, 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 and mitigate inequity? Yes, exactly. Yes. So, so, so we do mention, you know, um, sort of other forms of work, right, and how we can uh, make sure, again, that workers are not only in situations where they're reliant on income, but also on how we build wealth, right? We talked quite a bit about how income is only one of the gaps. Um, the wealth gap uh, in, in the state and in the country, frankly, is even broader when you look at racial inequities um, and, and, and multiple other forms of inequity, including your question about, about place. And so yes to that as a solution. Um, again, this seems like a good time to mention. There is, you know, we don't want to be overly um, sanguine about where we are, right? Like this is, you know, it's, it's, there are you know millions of people who are who are still unemployed. There is you know, the devastation to the economy um, due to COVID that that has you know accelerated other forms of devastation. Um, and, and I think that you know there are as as James already mentioned, as we talked about a lot with the commission, people who are still working but still not secure, right? Not not, not income secure, not not secure in other ways. And so um, we know that the challenges are really. Um, really, really large. We also were able to, through the life of the commission, hear from people who were doing innovative things in their space to address that. So that included work, for example, specifically in the Inland Empire, or we went to Stockton and heard from Mayor Tubbs. And there, you know, I think building on some of those innovations is very exciting to us. So there are people in California who are doing really exciting work around um, cooperatives and employee ownership. Um, and there are people doing things around, you know, we heard from um, the, the, the Job Quality Fund, which, you know, sort of inspired this idea that if there are other ways of supporting employers who are doing the right thing, maybe even to give them an initial support to do something that then has its own, um, uh, you know, benefits, right, so that the employers can then take them on and expand on them, whether it's just purchasing a piece of new equipment or setting up a, a you know, a program for upward mobility in your workplace. There are uh, just innovations like that, that, that we think um, should be uh, looked at as part of the solution. I see James wanting to jump in, James. Yeah, yeah I was going to add, uh, Julie, to that. One of the things that links this quality, job quality point and index that Julie is talking about with also the other priority that we had, Eduardo, about uh, future-proofing California, uh, we haven't talked uh, yeah. much about this, is, you know, 
we, even before the pandemic, we were already thinking about how do we future-proof California? And in that, in that moment, we largely had two things in mind. We had the impact of technology in mind, and we had climate change in mind, partly because we know those things are quite real. And if you live in California, they're very real, and they became very real over the last few years in very stark and painful uh, and tragic ways. Uh, but I think the, the pandemic opened our eyes to the possibility of future health crises as well, because it's not as if this is the final, last and final pandemic. So if you take these three big ones, if you like, impact of technology, climate, and maybe even future and ongoing health uh, challenges, one of the things you very quickly realize is that some of the work to prepare for those things uh, often also involve uh, creation of jobs that are actually good anyway. So think about preparing for climate change. We're gonna to need to build new kinds of infrastructure, new kind of adaptation. And much of that work itself is actually uh, mostly quite fairly often associated with good quality jobs. So by doing the work we're gonna to need to do uh, for the future, while also preparing the state, we hopefully could address both job and work quality issues, but also at the same time, quite frankly, help the state and people in California prepare. So there's a wonderful kind of confluence if you look at that fifth recommendation uh, where we had some very specific ideas. I should also mention one of the things that um, many of us on the commission uh, didn't wanna lose sight of is the impact of technology is more than just automation. We also have issues about data in the workplace. We have issues about uh, how do we think about protecting workers uh, when data enters the workplace in all kinds of ways. So we spent some time on those issues too. We ran out of time to get into it now, but that was very much on our minds yeah. and built into our work. Yeah. Well, and to build on that, there was also the you know technology as a form of like surveillance, right? Technology as a form of uh, you know worker oppression, and how do we think about and 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 and, dis and disrupt that? What, one last thing I just wanted to say to your earlier question too, Edward, about you know kind of government's role and, and jobs and job quality is, um, you know, we had Carla Javits on our commission who um, was very, um, you know, consistent in reminding us about uh, the, the workers who are most likely to be left behind if we're not intentional about it, right? Workers who face multiple barriers to employment, they were formerly incarcerated, um, mm -hmm. homeless or precariously housed. Mm -hmm. And there, again, there are, um, there are, things in place that help to address that, then employment social enterprises are a way that um, people who otherwise are working to get into the job market can actually get a job. And, um, and, and many of those are supported by government contracts, for example, right? So I think that, there, that we just were able to really um, both think at a high level about ideas, but also dig in deeply enough to see what solutions are being tried and tested. And are there things that we could scale to help meet the, uh, the recommendations and the goals that we have? So we're not really starting from ground zero. And that goes back to your initial question about what makes California special? Um, I think we were very um, heartened to hear from all across the state, things that people were doing to try to address these issues. And we tried to be true to that in, in the recommendations too. Thanks, thanks. Uh, a really great question came in, um, and, and, and I'd, I'd love to hear uh, Mary Kay and, and, and take on this, and, 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 and Julie as well. It's the, the, the about uh, immigrant work. 
And immigrant work is a big part of the labor force in California, but it's also a significant part of the labor force across the country. How do the, the idea of the rights uh, of immigrant workers and very importantly undocumented uh, um, workers feature in your thinking? How does this uh, part, substantial part of the workforce uh, um, feature into your thinking. And I know SEIU has been one of the most uh, innovative, I think, uh, um, unions out there trying to, you know, organize and represent and, and, and advocate for, 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 for these workers. I'd, I'd love to hear, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how this, this, this part of the labor force fits into your overall analysis. It's um, part of the findings, um, Eduardo, about what's the problem included an analysis about California's both uh, benefit of, from uh, uh, immigrant work and what immigrant workers contribute to the economy and the structural barriers that are created because of their status. And um, I think all of us started the commission at the height of the child separation policy unfolding on the southern border, I think as we convened, and the sort of cruelness of our national treatment of immigrants that's been escalating was in our face throughout. So I think undocumented workers um, were thought about in every one of those uh, moonshots. That's one. Two is the COVID crisis um, and the lack of access for undocumented people to access benefits that were coming from the federal government and then the state government trying to intervene by opening access through special allocations of money that philanthropy matched, to me was an example of how we were trying to um, do a work around the structural problem that we have in the nation. Uh, and so uh, everything that we discussed, place, the number of undocumented in Stockton and Fresno and Bakersfield, and the degree to which that inequality was wider uh, than in any other place in the country between those communities and the San Francisco Bay Area, I remember like was a dagger to my heart thinking, oh my God, right here in California, we have the grossest economic and racial inequality of any place in the nation. Um, and so this question you're posing about therefore, um, how do undocumented workers and their families get access is a combination of all these interventions, but ultimately um, I believe creating the power necessary to fix the broken immigration system uh, so that uh, workers have access. And I would say that the, the presence of the pandemic and the experience of one in three people being infected in, in the LA community was emblematic of if we don't think about how we're all in this, if, if that wasn't a clear case for how we're all in it together, I don't know what is. And, and it raised the consciousness and the urgency, I believe, of trying to intervene uh, on behalf of that community because it's in all of our, it, we can't restore the health of the state or our communities unless we are um, targeting the access that's required for public health, economic and racial equity to the undocumented community. 
Yeah, I mean, there's very little to add to, to, to Mary Kay's um, description of that, except I will say that, you know, I think when it comes to immigrant workers and specifically uh, undocumented workers, we really see the gap between policy and reality, right? I mean, here in California, you know, there are explicit labor, uh, there's a labor code section that says that your, you know, your immigration status is irrelevant to your protections by, uh, under the labor laws. But the reality for workers, especially given what Mary Kay has described as, you know, a, a, a you know, the, the um, both, both by rhetoric and priority um, in, in the past uh, four years has really been devastating and, and made COVID even more devastating. Uh, the only other thing I'll say is that sometimes our policies fall short too, right? So we, um, this came up in the, in um, the conversations we had uh, at the commission too, that there are explicit ways in which the undocumented are excluded from certain um, protections and safety nets. And so we have a recommendation in the report about really taking a hard look at whether our safety nets are sufficient, but certainly what we've seen in COVID is, you know, undocumented individuals are not entitled to unemployment insurance. So when you have massive pandemic and unemployment, what happens in that situation? And, you know, governments and, and, and philanthropy and organizations and unions have stepped in in the breach, but that is a really big breach. Yeah, yeah. So listen, I wanted to ask, we're coming to, to the close here, but I want to I get squeeze one last question in for, for all three of you, um, which is like, what's the first priority? What's the number one policy or change in practice or you know, thing that moves us on to, to this better path that we want to be on? Well, I'll start to say, um, I mean, it's also just an opportunity to say thank you to Mary Kay and James, who are co-chairs and who stepped up just magnificently. Um, I, I would say, I think what the commission would say to that is that we have five priority areas for a reason, right? Which is that every single one of them is critically important. Um, in many ways, they reinforce each other, right? So we recognize from the very beginning that you can't do um, one thing without uh, trying to do other things. But we were also very um, careful about not going so big that we that there was nothing concrete in 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 what we in what we recommended so um, I'll punt to say you know I don't think we can prioritize among um, the the recommendations and the priority areas but I will also say that that is a perfect question for the people who are listening and for the people that we hope to engage because the idea was always that this report would not be a you know here's what we need from government or here's what we need from any one sector or any one actor it really was a what is can we can we spur ideas that move people to action around really big goals and a vision for what our what 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 we want um, the world to look like? Um, and so that that's that's really how I think we would we would answer the question about um, what's the number one goal is to get everybody engaged in doing something um, to further the recommendations. She's our Secretary of Labor, and we're sticking to that answer. <laughs> I, I, I'm with Madam Secretary, too, on this one. <laughs> Great. Well, I just wanted to come in and close this out. Thank you all so much. This was a fantastic conversation. You've given us lots to think about and to hopefully go out and act on. So really, really appreciate all that you've shared today. 
Um, I also want to thank my many Aspen colleagues who helped put these events together. It is a huge team effort and many thanks to my colleagues for all that they do to bring these events to you. Thank you to the audience. This is terrific, great audience participation. You had great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them, but um, please do take a moment uh, as you leave to fill out our feedback survey. We love to hear from you. Let us know what you thought and what you'd like us to talk more about. Um, and thanks everybody just for spending time with us today and we hope you'll come back and join us again soon. Yeah. Okay. Thank you guys. Thank you. Okay. Thank you Eduardo. Thank you, Thank you Julie. Thank, Thank you Mary Kay. You. Okay. Thank you all. <laughs>